Our text for this morning, Revelation chapter 21, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Here now again, God's holy word. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people." God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would rest on us now. It would empower us to hear and to believe and to trust in your words. Father, help us to make proper application of them. Deliver us from all distraction. Deliver us from all error, we pray, and guide us into truth by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, Sarah, Jacob, and I took a trip to St. Louis the city where I mostly grew up. It's the city where Sarah and I were married. It's Bailey's birthplace. Lots of important life events happened there for us, but we had not been back as a family since before Jacob was born. So he had never seen many of these things and places that we'd always talked about. He'd never had real pizza before because he hadn't been to St. Louis. So it was his first opportunity to have real pizza. It was beautiful, it was a good experience. When we lived there in the late 90s, there was a great deal of money and effort being pumped into revitalizing the downtown area and, and making it an attractive, safe place. It was a city full of great things for families, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a really great place to live. Our, our suburb was clean, and it was comfortable. And, and when I lived there, when we lived there, we had a great genuine pride in our city. Um, it, it was a wonderful place to be. But in the 20 years since then, and it, it has experienced incredible, considerable decline. Several uh, publications have called St. Louis the murder capital of the United States. There's more violent crime there per capita than Detroit or Baltimore. The unemployment rate is one of the worst in the country, and you can see it. There's this pallor of dirtiness and decay where once there was life and renewal, it's not there in the same way. And I still tell people, I still tell people I'm from there, but not with the same sense of satisfaction, certainly not with the same sense of, of pride. And I have no desire to ever go back there and live there. It's, I'm happy for all those great memories to stay memories. I don't, I don't want to go back and live there for any reason. And I think this is many of our experiences, those of us who grew up in and around cities and, and uh, metropo metropolitan areas, there are, are no notable exceptions, but for the most part, 
It seems like that's just what happens with cities. You have brief glimpses of greatness, but eventually it's crime and it's filth and it's despair. And this drives us out of the cities to go raise our families in the suburbs or further out. We are inclined to idealize country life, to idealize peaceful, agrarian, pastoral life. I mean, after all, God put Adam in a garden, right? And Adam's calling was to be a farmer, to take care of trees and plants and animals. But he failed. He got exiled from the garden. And we assume that things have only gone downhill since then. We may also assume that all the faithful shepherds and all the farmers of the scriptures were just working to get us back to that agricultural ideal. People attracted to life in the city, on the other hand, are vagabonds, are exiles, are murderers. Cain was all three. Cain built the first city, and he was a murderer, and he was a vagabond, and he was an exile. Lot, his heart was twisted, and he's attracted to life in the city. And we're very suspicious of that. Babel was a bad idea. Babel was a, a city built to mock God. Jesus starts a, his ministry up in rural Galilee, and he gets some opposition there, but it's when he makes it to the city, it's when he goes to Jerusalem that he is crucified. The city kills the prophets. In Revelation, we've seen the harlot city that drinks the blood of the martyrs. And as a result, in Revelation, the city gets what's coming to it. We've read that. So you might assume that the message of the Bible, when it comes to cities, the message of the Bible is stay out of the city. The city is where bad things happen. But these last chapters of Revelation show us that when heaven and earth are finally joined together, the point of contact between heaven and earth is a city, the heavenly city of God's reign and his rule in heaven. The heavenly city becomes an earthly city. The heavenly Jerusalem is joined to earth, and it's a city unlike anything that the world has ever seen. But it is a city. It's a city, not a garden. The last scenes of the Bible don't depict Adam finally back in the garden naked as if that's what we've been trying to get back to all along. We've been trying to get back to that scene of uh, the first things. No, the vision of the future is saints clothed in glory and maturity in a city. That's the story of history. Now, granted, there are times when the faithful are called to get out of the city. We have many examples in the Bible. Lot was to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham gets out of a city of idolaters to go follow Yahweh. Israel leaves Egypt, the greatest civilization on earth, to go out to the wilderness to obey God. There's a time to get out of Babylon. There's a time to flee the city of Jerusalem. And that's true because none of these cities are anything like the heavenly Jerusalem. None of these cities are built on the pattern of the, the, the heavenly city. And also, we need to know that the Garden of Eden wasn't your backyard tomato garden. The Garden of Eden was not a raw, uncultivated wilderness. The Garden in Eden was a special sanctuary. It was a meeting place between God and man. Genesis 2.8 says that God planted a garden to the east of Eden. God deliberately carved out of the untamed wilderness a special environment where he placed two sacramental trees. So the garden was a temple. 
It was a worship space. It had rivers flowing out of it to water the earth so that the entire world would be blessed by what happens in in Eden. And if Adam followed those rivers out, he would follow one river to the land of gold and he'd follow another river to the land of, of precious gems and other precious metals. The rivers pointed Adam outward as he took dominion. He was to take the lessons and the patterns that he learned in worship, in communion with God. He was to take those lessons and patterns and push them out to the whole world. That was his calling. So the garden wasn't simply a vegetable patch. It wasn't simply a fruit orchard, but it was a developed place of worship. In fact, the garden was the very first civilized space. It was a city in seed form. And Adam wasn't only a simple farmer. Adam was to be a priest and a king as well. Now, as we look forward to the end of history, we're considering the early part of history, we're considering the first part of history, but we're looking at it in view of the end of history. We're looking forward to the end of the story after the final judgment, after Jesus has put a lid on Satan and on death and and put a lid on hell, after everything that brings suffering, everything that brings death and everything that destroys has been contained, we find that the garden sanctuary of Eden has grown up. We see everything in Eden here in this city. There's trees. There's not just two trees. There's trees everywhere. There, there's water. There's water running out of. There's water flowing out of this city, just like Eden. All of the precious gems and all the precious metals are there. Adam has gone out and he's collected them and he's brought them back in. The second Adam has done that, brought the riches of the world into into the sanctuary, but it's matured. The garden has matured into a city. There's no temple in the city, we're going to read. The walls of the temple have been pushed out to the walls of the city. The whole city lives in the presence of God. There are no barriers to worship. There are no more curtains or veils in the city. Everything is sacred. Everything is holy space. And we talk about the heavenly Jerusalem. We talk about the heavenly city. Some of you are easily um, enamored by that idea because you love cities. And the idea of a new Jerusalem is easy for you to get on board with. Some of you moved away from dirty, congested, uh, dangerous cities, and you have a hard time getting excited about the concept of an eternal city. So you, you might think, well, you know, just give me a mountain, give me a prairie, give me an empty beach, and I'm going to be way more satisfied that than a stinky old city. But let's see what God has to say about this city, this heavenly city, and it's going to take us two weeks to work through chapter 21. So let's get started on verse 1. He says, John says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea back to the beginning of history. We're looking at these things as bookends, the beginning of history and the end. In the beginning of human history, God makes Adam in his likeness and he commissions Adam to go be his representative to the world. He wants Adam to exercise the kind of rule on earth that God exercises in heaven. Adam's mission is to reshape the earth into heaven's heaven's image so that the earth runs completely on heaven's agenda, where things work on earth the way they do in heaven. That's Jesus' prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That mission that God gives Adam is not completed until this point. It doesn't get completed until Revelation 21, when the second Adam has successfully completed his mission of subduing death, defeating Satan, and now earth and heaven 
finally have their proper relationship to each other. And John calls this new arrangement, he calls this a new heaven and a new earth. And the former arrangement, the former heaven and earth had passed away. Earth and heaven are no longer separated from each other. They have new connection and new union and are, are consummated in their union together. Uh, briefly last week, we looked at several places in the Bible where God is always making new creations. Uh, 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 Israel after they came out of the Babylonian captivity, Isaiah calls that a new creation. That's a new heavens and earth. The Israel, after they came through the Red Sea, that was a new earth. Noah comes out of the flood. That's a new earth. That's a new creation. God is always doing this. He is always developing and strengthening and regenerating the, the heaven and earth order. He's regenerating the cosmos. He's transforming things. And so every time there's a new creation, it doesn't mean that the old creation has been obliterated. It hasn't been annihilated. It's been transformed. We're going to read in just a few minutes that Jesus makes all things new. He renews, he reforms, he restores. And here we see the old arrangement is gone and the new arrangement is fully realized. So the goal of history is not that the physical creation be obliterated. That's not what we're looking forward to. We're not looking for physical embodied creation existence to be eliminated, but for it to be regenerated and for it to come under heaven's rule. That is what we're looking forward to. That there is an eternal earth, which is clear in Revelation 21, that there is an eternal earth is not something that's generally spoken of, however, in a lot of Christian writing and popular uh, Christian music and in revival hymns from the 19th century. We don't tend to think of an eternal existence on earth. We tend to think of a heavenly existence only. And there's this general assumption that the physical earth is bound for total destruction. And, that, and, and one of the places our mind goes is, is uh, to Second Peter when Peter talks about the elements of the world being burned with fire. Well, let's go over there and let's see what Peter says. If you have your Bible and you're following along, let's, let's join uh, together over in Second Peter 3. Let's meet over there. And I want to see what Peter says and determine what he's talking about. Second Peter 3, 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, the day of the Lord that Peter's talking about is what we've been reading about this entire time in Revelation. What is the day of the Lord that John says is very near? What is the day of the Lord that, that John says will shortly come to pass? What is the day of the Lord that Jesus says in Matthew 24, I tell you, uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment is the end of Jerusalem. It's the end of the old world. It's the end of the temple and everything. So, so when uh, everything that has to do with the old covenant. So when Peter is talking about the day of the Lord, that's the day he's talking about. And you say, well, how's that possible? Because he says 
The old heavens and earth will pass away with a great noise. Well, what have we been reading about? What have we, what have we been studying in Revelation? Did the old heavens and earth pass away with a great noise? Absolutely. What have we seen there? We've seen trumpets. We've seen lightnings and thunder. We've seen loud voices coming from out of the throne of heaven. We've seen uh, and heard Jesus roar like a lion, putting one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. Has there been loud noise as the heavens dissolve and give, give rise to the new heavens and new earth? Uh, certainly. We've seen also the heavens on fire. Peter says the heavens are going to be set on fire. Well, uh, the heavens are on fire in Revelation as bowls of wrath are being poured out as the angels go get hot coals off the altar and fling them to earth. The heavens are on fire as there are lightnings and thunderings. And what then are the elements that Peter's talking about? What are the elements that are being dissolved? What are the elements that are being melted? Is Peter talking about the stuff on the uh, periodic table of elements? You know, is he talking about nitrogen and oxygen and gold and iron? I failed chemistry, so that's about all I can remember. Um, they gave me basic science because I couldn't keep up in chemistry. High school, I'm talking about. I didn't choose chemistry in college. Uh, I'm not a crazy person, um, but I uh, know. Uh, he's not talking about the chemical elements. What's he talking about? What are the elements that he's saying? He's talking about principles or rudiments. Now, I rarely give you Greek words, but I want you to know this one. Stoikion is the word that's used there. Uh, it's a word used throughout the New Testament, and it's a word that every time this word is used, he's not talking about chemical elements. He's talking about principles, rudiments, like the elements of, of English or the elements of, of uh, e economics, the elements, the principles, the rudiments. Paul uses this word, so let's ask, let's ask Paul, Paul, what are the elements that are going to be dissolved on the day of the Lord? When Jesus comes in judgment against the city of Jerusalem, what elements are going to be dissolved by fire? Paul talks about those over in Galatians. If you're with me still, flip on over to Galatians 4 and hear how Paul uses this very same word. He uses the same word stoikion, and here's how he use it. Uh, uses it in uh, Galatians 4, verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Were we in bondage under boron? Um, were we in, in bondage under, I can't think of any more. I should have written them down. But were, we in, under, were we in bondage under, you know, plut plutonium? Is that what he's talking about? We were in bondage under the elements of the world. What? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So what he's saying is we were under the rudiments, the principles of the old world. God sent his son to submit to those elements of the old world, to fulfill their requirements, to redeem those who were under the law and to deliver them. And then Paul asks the Galatians, okay, so since Jesus has done that, why are you still acting like you're under the elements, the rudiments, the principles of the old world? Pick up in verse nine. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? Again, he's not talking about the periodic table. He's talking about the ordinances of the old covenant. You turn to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. 
So Paul says, get out from under the old calendar of the old world. Get out from those ordinances. Get out from those requirements. Get out from those, those ordinances of the old covenant. Get out from there. Those are the elements that are melted and dissolved when Jesus comes in judgment. There are two more places where Paul uses this word in Colossians 2.8. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the elements of the world and not according to Christ, according to the basic principles of the world, according to the stoicheion, the rudiments of the world and not according to Christ. It's those rudiments that are melted in judgment. In Hebrews 5.12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the elements of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. It's the rudiments, the basic principles. So if we take that understanding of the word stoicheon, if we take that understanding of the word elements back to Peter, we see that what elements burn on the day of judgment the day of the fall of Jerusalem, the day when the temple is a smoking crater, the day of judgment melts the elements of the old world, which include the land, the city, the temple, the priest, uh, priesthood, the sacrifices, the calendar, everything is wrapped up, it's folded up, and it's put away. And we have a new environment, we have a new temple, we have a new arrangement of heaven and earth in Christ. But if we get that wrong, if we believe that planet Earth is headed for an inferno only, then we might conclude that we have only heaven to look forward to, and our, our future hope amounts to kind of this eternal, disembodied, floaty existence. But that can't be because the scriptures tell us that there is a new earth. And if you believe that this earth is only headed for destruction, has no hope of redemption, has no hope of regeneration, renewal, reformation, then you tend to think of any activity in the world as being pointless. Any attempt to take over the arts, any attempt to take over and, and, and use the government that we have been given to restrain evil in the world, any effort to redeem education or economics or business programming, medicine, all of these things you might think, that's just, that's just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. That's just fooling around with something that's about to be burned. You see, if that's your attitude, then we really just need to have our Bible and have prayers and just keep to ourselves and not engage. But you see, that's not the message that God gives us about the future that he has prepared for us. There is a redeemed, restored, resurrected earth. There is a resurrected creation. Jesus gets a real body in his resurrection. Jesus is not a, 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 this disembodied uh, man. Jesus is a man. Jesus eats. Jesus has hands and feet and he's just the first fruits. We also read that we'll be given new bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. So let me, let me just kind of briefly sketch out your future. You are in union with Christ. You belong to Jesus. You rest in and trust in his works for your salvation. One of these days, you're going to draw your last breath. Your heart is going to stop beating. 
you're going to pass from this life and you are going immediately to the presence of Jesus. The apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There you rest at the feet of Jesus, waiting for the resurrection of all things. You are waiting for the final judgment as Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 15. You are then resurrected to eternal life in a body fit for life in the eternal created new heavens and new earth, the, 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 the physical earth. That is your eternal home. That is your future according to the scriptures. It's what we've been mapping out throughout our whole study. I'm always taken aback a little bit whenever I hear songs and prayers talk about heaven as our home. Now, and I get it. Jesus is our home. So to be with Jesus is to be at home. I understand. But, but we are being prepared for life after life after death. You understand? We're preparing for life after life after death. There is life beyond heaven. There is a resurrected, embodied, eternal life on the new heavens and earth. There's, a, there's an earthly existence. Man was not created to dwell in heaven for eternity. He was created to live on earth earth. The fall ruined that. The fall put enmity between us and the creation. But now we read in Revelation 21, because of the work of Jesus, because he has completed the dominion mandate, he's fulfilled the mandate in protecting and lifting up his bride. He's put down the serpent. Now we're going to see how it's always supposed to work. And we see it in a city that runs as he intended. I spent all this time on verse one. We're going to move more quickly through the rest of this section, but there's one more little phrase we've got to get to. Um, there was no more sea. What's that all about? Last week, we saw the sea gave up its dead. The sea was a terrifying place in the ancient world, and especially so to the Hebrews. Hebrews don't sail. Hebrews don't get on boats. Deep water is judgment. The abyss swallows you up. You are at the mercy of the winds and the waves. You don't see a lot of Jewish sailors in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Noah gets on a barge, but the ark, the ark doesn't have a rudder. It doesn't have a sail. It doesn't have an outboard motor. It's just a barge that the water comes up and it lifts it up and the water carries it over and rests it on the mountain. Um, uh, and that was a traumatic event. Who else gets on a boat? Jo Jonah gets on a boat. And it's a boat going the wrong way. And then he gets thrown overboard, which kind of substantiates all of our fears about ever getting on the boat. It kind of says you don't want to play in the water. You don't want to get out there. When Jesus comes, he and the apostles get on these little fishing boats and they go back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, you might think, well, that's a massive body of water. The Sea of Galilee was 13 miles long and eight miles wide. Lake Michigan is 307 miles long and 118 miles wide by comparison. They ought to call it the puddle of Galilee, uh, but they called it the sea because it was this massive body of water in their minds. And Jesus calms the waters of the sea with his voice. He calms the wind with his voice. He takes dominion over all the waters, small and great. Later, Paul and the apostles get on bigger ships and they carry the gospel out and take dominion over the whole Mediterranean region. And now generations upon generations later in Revelation 21, millennia later, there's no more danger. There's no more threat. The uninhabitable parts of creation have been subdued. They've been, they've been taken away. They've been mastered. Uh, this uh, statement that there's no more sea might also be a reference to the heavenly sea. In creation, there are waters above the firmament. 
And perhaps what we're reading is that those have been removed. And now we have direct physical access to the heavenly courts. You can't get to heaven now. You could build a spaceship and you could go uh, warp nine for a hundred years and you'd never get to heaven. You'd never find it. You can't get there. The only way that you can get to heaven is to pass through death because there's a veil, there's a barrier. But here the veil is lifted. When is a veil lifted? A veil is lifted when you get married. There's a consummation of heaven and earth and it's wedding language that we hear next. Verse two, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. A helpful phrase that I came across in my study this week that really helped encapsulate what I've, trying, I've been trying to communicate these last several weeks, a, a helpful phrase that helps me articulate this thought. So I saw one writer refer to the definitive progressive aspects of Christ's kingdom. Um, that is, there are definite, decided heavenly realities that are being progressively worked out in history in time on earth. And we've seen a few of these already in our study in Revelation. The church is presently not simply the betrothed of Christ, the church is the bride of Christ, and there's already a heavenly reality. There's a definitive heavenly reality to the marriage of Christ and his bride. The church triumphant, the church in heaven, is wedded to Christ. And yet, in many places in the Bible, like in Ephesians 5, we read that the church is a bride being prepared for her husband. So there's an earthly, progressive, gradual fulfillment of the thing that's already been decided, it's already been established in heaven. The church is still being prepared for her wedding when you look at the church on earth. Another place we saw this is that Satan is bound and yet the keys and the chains are given to the church, the authority is given to church. So Satan... He's not running around anywhere he wants. He's chained, he's bound. And yet, as the church is faithful with the keys and with the chains to bind Satan, she takes the slack out of his chain on earth. You see, his binding is definite in heaven, but is being progressively worked out and realized in time, in history, on the, on the earth. And that, that was so helpful to me, especially as you come to this passage, because I read things that are... Are, are being said to describe the heavenly city. And I think, well, that's true now. And we have some taste of that now. And oh yes, this is also true. So things get formulated, resolved, things get declared in heaven, and then they get pushed out on earth and they're progressively realized in history. So when we read this description of the future kingdom, we get little tastes of this now that, and, and we'll have a fuller sense, a fuller enjoyment of them in eternity. So when you read down this list of these, these descriptions, God will tabernacle with men, but hasn't he already done that? Hasn't he already tabernacled with men in taking on human flesh? He does dwell with us now. He dwells in us and among us, and we dwell in him. He is our environment. There's this mutual indwelling between us and Christ. 
So this is already reality, but it will be seen more fully in the consummation, in the full realization of these things. He wipes away the tears from our eyes right now. Paul says, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. He delivers us from death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We have a taste of resurrection life now. And yet, though we have a taste of these things here and now, and those these promises are so sure, it's as if they already happened. For now, we still live in these temporary bodies, these tents, these bodies that still die and ache, and cry, and sin, and sorrow, and grieve, our sinful and mortal condition prevents us from a full, unadulterated appreciation of the blessings of this heavenly kingdom. And we know, in spite of that, that the fullness of these promises are ours, they're coming, and we long for them. What will it be like? What in the world will it be like when sin has been purged from us to the point that it will be impossible for us to think a single thought that is out of step with God's holiness? What will it be like when I have no more desire to set up idols in my heart? When I have every action and every word and idea that is in alignment, in perfect alignment with God's law and his goodness. When I am fully on heaven's agenda and not on my own, what will it be like to not hurt, to not grieve, to not have physical pain? What will it be like when all physical limitations of our weak flesh are removed? You know, to have all the energy and resilience and health you had when you were five? in a body that is fully matured, grown, a resurrection body with at least as much strength that you had when you were 25 and all the energy of a five-year-old and this mature body. All of these blessings are ours and they're becoming ours because of the work of Jesus to stamp out, put down, crush, obliterate sin and Satan and death itself. And we get to see a glimpse of that here. Then he, verse five, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. It is Jesus who makes all things new because all things belong to him. Name something that is outside of his jurisdiction. Name something that's outside of his control. Name something that he is not going to either put away or restore and redeem and bring to full fruition. He bought the world with his blood. It's all his. And he is beginning a progressive, recreative work in history. He does it with his church. He starts it in us. We are being made new. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's exactly what John uh, writes here. Behold, I make all things new. That's what Jesus says. I'm making all things new. Where does it start? It starts in us. In Revelation, we see a completed work that's already started in you, in us, and it's gradually being worked out in our lives. You and I are being progressively sanctified. And that process is real frustrating sometimes because we want to be immediately sanctified. We want to be immediately delivered from the pain and the sorrow and the sin. And we get frustrated when that sanctification doesn't happen as quickly as we want. But you see, God's plan to regenerate the whole cosmos is taking millennia. 
If you're growing, if you're confessing your sins, if you are strengthening yourself in self-discipline by the power of God's Holy Spirit, don't despair because one day he will complete the work that he began in you and he will say, it is done, which he says in verse six. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We've heard that before, right? It is done. It is finished. Jesus said it is finished on the cross when he completed all the work that he came to do. Jesus' work is finished. His work of redemption is finished. And you can't add anything to it. It's finished. It's done. Back in chapter 16, a loud voice came from heaven and says, it is done when time was up for old Jerusalem. The old world with its old temple and its old culture and all of its ordinances is finished. It's never coming back. It's done. It's done. Now we have another phrase. It is done. Now we have this line repeated again. The work of uniting heaven and earth is complete. It's done. It is finished as decisively as those other works that are done. And the old order for the cosmos is over. It's finished. And the old world is never coming back. Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the alphabet. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I can make these promises, Jesus says, and I can guarantee them because I'm the one writing history. I'm the one writing the story and I can uh, direct it and I can promise you what's going to happen. He concludes this section with the reminder that all of this is possible in part because he has put down everything that opposes him. I don't understand why uh, people get indigestion and real upset in thinking about God's judgment, the reality of Christ's dominion over sin and death and hell requires him to put down all enemies and all threats to his sovereignty, and all, all opposition to his, his, his crown. When I say threats, I mean supposed threats. Nothing is a real threat. That Jesus puts all these things down. Why does that bother us? Don't we want a king who completely subdues his enemies? And we see that here, all who oppose him, all who deliberately and defiantly refuse to submit to him and his order and his law are put away forever. Now, I want you to pay real close attention to this. We're reading about the eternal kingdom and the lake of fire still exists. And it still contains those whose lives have been characterized by their sins and whose lives have not been characterized by their trust in Jesus. There's this real popular idea, and I mentioned it last week, and I'm going to mention it again. There's this real growing popular idea that uh, in eternity, those who have not trusted Christ just cease to be. They just evaporate. They're just annihilated. And with that, there's this other real popular growing idea that, that everyone is universally saved without respect to their trust in Christ. But that's just not substantiated by the scriptures. We get into the eternal kingdom and there's still a lake of fire. And we read, it's not that uh, their remains are there. It's not that their ashes are there. They haven't ceased to be. They're not evaporated. They are there. Who is there? The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. So there's no universal redemption of mankind. And these people have not been included in the kingdom. 
despite their rebellion. Heaven and earth have been regenerated and still there exists a company of rebels who because they have rejected Christ are locked out of that new creation. All of the unrepentant, all of the unredeemed must be removed from the scene. If you don't want life, if you don't desire an eternal feast on the riches of God's universe, if you want your idols, if you want your own way, you get it. You want your own way, you get it. You want to identify yourself by your sin instead of clothing yourself with the works of Christ? Well, that's what you get. You get your own identity, except it doesn't stand on the day of judgment. The question at hand when you read this list cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. The question is not, have you done any of these things? And does that automatically put you in and under judgment for eternity? The question is, is that your identity? Is that who you are? Whose works are you resting on? Are you receiving and resting in the works of Christ? Or are you identified by something in this list? Is that who you are? Because it's treacherous to define yourself by your sin. I'm just going to go one more place. And I promise it's the last time I'm going to ask you to flip because we're going to wrap it up real quick. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, very similar language is being used by the apostle Paul. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. You are no longer identified by these things. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, you all used to have these identities. You used to have these habits. You used to live these lifestyles, but not anymore. That's not who you are. You have put on Christ. You have rejected those things and you've put on the works of Jesus. Now enter the kingdom of God who is making all things new. This regenerational, this reformational work on creation is a work that God has begun in time, in history, in our lives. Adam's job was to adorn the garden, protect the garden, push the garden out to creation, and conform the rest of the earth to Eden's blueprint and heaven's blueprint. God gave him a wife as a helper in his work. He told him to be fruitful so they could have children and continue to do this work and work on it together to build a city, to build a society built on heaven's blueprint. Now you, child of God, have been made a new creation. You are a new creature. You have been regenerated and you're part of this work of regeneration, this project of regeneration. And it's your job, it's your calling to go take a hold of the wilderness, take a hold of the wild, dirty, decrepit, crazy things and to conform them to heaven's blueprint. What is it you love? What is your calling? What is your occupation? Go take it, take your business, your art, your home, your passions, enjoy them, but bend them and carve them and shape them and pull them into alignment with Christ's kingdom. That is your calling in the world. After Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, out of his side came forth water and blood. Here in Revelation 21, we read, it is done. And what do we have? We have another river of water. Out of Eden flowed waters. Out of the temple of Solomon flowed waters. 
Water chariots carried water out of the temple courtyard. In Ezekiel's vision of the heavenly temple, water flows out. Out of the body of Jesus, water flows out. You are a new sanctuary. You are a new temple. And out of you, waters flow out. John uh, 7 says, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You are in a long line of sanctuaries that pours out living water to heal and regenerate and refresh the world. You are the new temple city. Your life in Christ gives life to the world. The regenerative work begun in you is a vital part of the work that Christ is doing in the world to bring the world and its kingdoms under his reign. So my responsibility and your responsibility is to not frustrate or impede or disrupt that work of renewal, but to take out all the dams, remove all the barriers, take away anything that would pollute that water and to submit disciplining our minds and bodies to take off those sins that beset us and put on righteousness to be life to the world. Because what's in view here when we talk about this city is not my private, personal, individual, invisible deal with God. And we don't live as if religion is an internal matter. You just get your thinking right, just get your belief straight, and that's all that matters. But what's in view here is the salvation, the deliverance, the redemption of the whole world, the redemption of the cities of man. The world and all that moves in it belongs to Jesus, and he will have dominion over all of it. It will all be refined. It will all be made complete. Even the stinky, filthy, hot, dirty cities. As hard as it is to see now, the cities are transformed progressively by the city that is Zion, by the heavenly Jerusalem, the church, which we will study further next week. But for now, let us pray. Heavenly Father, you spoke your eternal word to conquer all of his enemies and all of our enemies. So speak again and again. Speak that beasts may be thrown down. Speak that all slanderers would be silenced. Speak that the clouds of darkness would be dispelled through your son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the spirit, one God, age after age. Amen.